The Outer Sanctum is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respect to their elders past and present. My God. At last. Sanctum's back. The Outer Sanctum is back. Welcome back. Thank God you're back. Outer Sanctum is coming back. My heart's on fire. So excited. We are back, baby. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. It has (laughs) been a minute. But we thank you so much for your patience and your support. Thank you so much to those beautiful voices at the top of the show. My name is Emma Race and I am thrilled, nay, I am honoured to be back driving the bus full of my football love and sanctum sisters. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Hi, it's good to be back. I'm Julia Kiera. Hi, it's great to be back. I'm Kate Sear. Hi, it's Lucy Race here. So happy to be here. Hello, everyone. I'm Rana Hussein and, of course, I'm back. Thanks for the love and support. It's Shelley Ware here. Oh, it's so nice to have you back, my ladies. We've got so much conversation to have. We're not actually going to go back through the entire back catalogue of issues and football mm-hmm. stories that we've missed in the last couple of weeks slash months. But we do have some big stories to cover today because since we last spoke, the AFLW has moved, its fixture has moved. There's also been a huge story this week with Tex Walker from the Adelaide Crows that we will be talking about. And we also want to dig in with some Olympic chat because all of us are desperate to throw the javelin and ride the pommel horse, whichever way you <laughs> float your boat. <laughs> but first, we do need to address the fact that we've been gone from your ears for quite some time. We decided to make a move and we are now independent women to quote Destiny's Child. And it feels pretty good, actually, ladies. Lou? It really does. It feels good to be back. I think we needed the time and thank you for giving us that time. Like many people, it's been a tough year or two. But what we're really excited about is being independent and what those opportunities offer, the opportunities of being independent in terms of being able to maybe do some live shows, being able to change up the format, to bring in other voices when we can and to continue to innovate, especially when we are now about to cover an AFLW season that starts in December. I don't think we've ever done a Christmas pod before. (laughs) (laughs) And that was part of the decision because being at the ABC, they have a commitment to cricket and that leads them through the summer months. And we have a huge commitment to AFLW. And, you know, I don't think that the issues that we kind of were facing and the crossroads that we were at were really similar to what a lot of the players have been feeling. And, you know, they were issues with, you know, independence and opportunity, equality and sustainability. And we've landed in a place where we can take control of all of those things. In this beautiful era, women can uh, just create their own platforms and they don't need to wait for anyone to invite them in. And so we've taken full ownership of that. And what we hope is that the gap we've left at the ABC means that a door will be flung wide open for a new group of really diverse voices talking about sport. Kate? We started out in a lounge room many years ago and we were really grateful for the opportunity to be with the national broadcaster. We're all huge supporters of public broadcasting and the 
the um, and the ABC as an institution. So you know we wish them well, but it's it's great to be with a new platform. It will mean that in order to make this podcast sustainable and viable for all of us, that there will be some ads that come onto the podcast. And you know we appreciate that you know that that might be a bit different for some people, but you know, it's important for us to be able to produce a sustainable product that we do it that way. And and yeah, we're just excited. And we feel refreshed and have been really grateful to all of our listeners who've been patient and also kind of egging us um, egging us on to come back. I think that really gave us a, a boost and some encouragement that our voices were uh, welcome and people wanted to hear what we had to say and that was lovely. So it's good to be here. So the plan going forward is that you will receive in your ears every Wednesday a melee edition of the podcast, which will be you know, all the best bits of us talking about the issues of the week. And then on the Friday, you'll receive another Sanctum episode. And this one, oh, this is the baby of the Sanctum. This is the 10 of us got together and we birthed a little podcast, which is going to be called the Sanctum Fifth Quarter. I can see people driving in their cars (laughs) and punching the air and high-fiving their dog because the Fifth Quarter has a lot of good, there's just a lot of goodwill for the Fifth Quarter out there. It might be an episode where we're speaking to a coach or we might be talking about a book that's come out. It will be various things, but it'll be in conversation with the Outer Sanctum. Lucy? We do promise that we're not going to sing. We promise that we will not. <laughs> oh, no. We never sign up for that. Well, we're not going to return to the fifth quarter openers that we did through last year. And I was going to say, I can't promise that Julia and I won't revisit the English patient um, in a 25-part special um, and other f- similar films that what I think we could speak about for hours, like Portrait of a Lady on Fire. If oh. you want to hear us unpack that. Let us know, write us, email us. Jog on, Katie. That's what they say on the Twitter, jog on. All right. Are we ready to roll up our sleeves and melee, ladies? Gosh, it has actually been more than a minute. Okay, since we last potted, the AFLW fixture has moved to the start of November 2021. The person that I most want to hear from is Ms Julia Chiara. How do you feel about this schedule move and this fixture, JC? (laughs) Well, it's pretty hard to even imagine right now playing footy at that level just because of where we are with the eastern half of the country all in lockdown. But, you know, hopefully a November date means that we're at 80% vaccination, fingers crossed. Get vaccinated, everyone. So there's that part of it. But to be honest, I I am kind of excited. I think that it will, it's going to really push a lot of players in terms of their availability, their leave. You know, you think now that you've got Think of like the bunch of teachers that are in the AFLW who will be remote teaching for a bulk of the year, had to take leave at the beginning of the year and now have to take it at the end of the year. And there'd be lots of people in similar boats with that. So I think it is going to be a bit of a stress on players. But as a fan, I'm into it. The more footy, the better. (laughs) Shelley? Julia, do you think with your hesitation that it is because you don't think the AFL are going to put in as much energy into the success of AFLW? Is that what's driving that? Well, I like to just believe what's in front of me and I think that the AFL has, you know, shown its true colours from time to time when it comes to AFLW. So hopefully, you know, they they got it done this year, so hopefully that marks a, a change in the emphasis. Rana, you now bat for the other team. <laughs> that is cricket. <laughs> that is it, an a, apt a cricket, description. A, a cricket um, shaking in their boots? I don't know if that's how I would characterise it, Emma. <laughs> People I feel sorry for the most in all of this is the audience and audiences like me who genuinely love women's sport 
And cricket for a very long time has meant women's cricket as much as it's meant men's cricket. And the AFLW will now go up in direct competition with women's cricket. And that is just a heartbreaker for me because this is going to stretch sports media. It's going to stretch audiences and pit women against women yet again. And I don't know that I love that. I did some research because we got a question on the socials about how the players were feeling about it. I was very a journalist and rang a whole lot of players (laughs) to find out what they really thought. Nice. And I'm not going to tell you who I called, but I rang a, a big group of different and diverse players from different teams and and from around the country. And there was, the first thing was, there was a bit of shock that there was not much consultation in this, that the the announcement really took them by surprise. In some cases, players found out about it on socials rather than finding out from the Players Association or from their club or from the AFL. There was letters that followed up, but that it got leaked before they'd had a chance and they saw it on socials first. But they got over that and they were excited just at the concept of having another season to be able to play a lot. Of, there was still some, there was real positivity about it being starting at the end of this year. There was some issues for players who had moved interstate, already taken their annual leave for the year. And I understand that that's going to be an issue for this season only, really, but they've already taken their annual leave for the year. Biggest issue was that state leagues have only just finished or are just about to finish if they can. And the AFLW teams are already into their pre-pre-season. I asked what pre-pre-season is and unanimously I was told that pre-pre-season is when you're expected to turn up at the club, but you don't get paid to turn up at the club. So oh, yeah. that was that's another issue altogether. <laughs> but there was some concern about how the W will be supported and elevated and acknowledged and given promotion in what is the busiest time of the year. You're not just competing with other sports, but you're competing with Christmas and end of school and people going away and the weather. And I asked people about how they felt about playing in the heat. That was really the last thing that they were worried about. Rana? Well, uh, that's the other point in all of this, that the staff at AFL clubs are already under-resourced, especially post-COVID. And now in a time that is usually the off season, they will be on season. So now they are working at a elite level. The production that needs to happen around both of these competitions is so high and so much. They're going to be working around the clock. I actually don't know what the AFL were thinking when they thought we're going to own the year without servicing it. I also wonder about the fatigue factor with audiences and with crowds and that the reality is for many people, especially along the east coast of Australia, we've had a very tough two years with lockdowns. And I I wonder about the fatigue factor that people, are, you know, whether people are going to turn up or whether people are going to need to just have some time, you know, with family going away, doing those sorts of things. So it'll be really interesting to see. But let's celebrate innovation, I guess. It wasn't great when the end of the AFL season butted into the start of the AFL M season. I'm looking forward to seeing finals in clear air. One thing that the change in fixture has supported and allowed is former male players from the AFL M stream who have Uh, media roles, it's opened up an opportunity for them to take AFLW coaching jobs. As Nick Del Santo explained on SEN on the weekend when he was asked why he wanted the St Kilda coaching job, he said, well, I had 
some free time in my schedule. So that's one of the fallouts and I don't think any of us saw this happening. Kate, what was your response to the Nick Del Santo appointment as the new head coach of the AFLW team in St Kilda? Shock, actually. I don't know whether I had, uh, didn't have my finger on the pulse or had lost touch with AFLW, but I was really, really surprised to hear that he had been appointed as the senior coach. I did not see that coming. You know, I think obviously there's been heaps of discussion about this in the last week or so since that announcement was made public. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people have missed the point of some of the criticism because they've seen it as a, you know, primarily a personal attack on Nick Del Santo and... I don't think by and large it is. I think his appointment raises a lot of really important questions about the system and the systems that continually produce opportunities for men over women. And, you know, we're now in a situation where of the 14 teams in the AFLW, we have 14 men as senior coaches, including men like Del Santo who don't, as far as I understand, have any background in coaching women's footy at, you know, at this level or even one level down and and no women coaches. So I was surprised and I was disappointed. What about you, Shelley? Really disappointed. And in the words of Lisa Alexander, one of our greats in our coaching netball, she said, excuses. I'm sick of the excuses about why women aren't actually coaching AFLW. I'm sick of it too. You know, one of the things is we get that they're just not ready for it. You know, my Nana, she played football. So let me tell you, women have been doing this for a really long time and women have been coaching women for a really long time. So this whole they're not ready rings true to why Aboriginal people aren't actually drafted with, oh, they're just not fit enough. It's all balderdash. I can say that stuff now. So (laughs) it really is um, exhausting and I think the excuses Mm. for women and the fact that, you know, we got a man who has no connection to this whole entire arena is really disappointing. Lucy? I think that's that's for me as well. I think the fact that we know that there are talented women and men who have experience in coaching women's football and for them not to, for one of those people not to get the job, I think is the thing that really raises our eyebrows. I'm really interested to hear from Julia. A lot of the criticism has been around you just need to wait. What do you think the problem is, Julia? (laughs) I think there's lots of problems. I think so the appointment of Nick Del Santo for me raises two main things. One of them is if you listen to his interview on SEN, and I'm sure he is a lovely guy and he sounds super passionate and enthusiastic about the coaching position. But in that interview, he says that, you know, he barely watched any AFLW until a couple of months ago when he was applying for this. He doesn't know many of the players. He doesn't know much about the program and he's learning that now. And I just think that when we talk about, you know, you get the best candidate and the most qualified candidate, the thing that women, the, the, the criteria that women work towards, that they've got to be the most qualified and know the most, you look at that and go, well, that doesn't mean anything because he clearly doesn't know the most and he's he's free to admit that. And he's free to admit that because he is an AFL M player who's played a lot of games and that that means more. It just means more in that world and in that decision-making process. The other part of it is I feel like we, we hear from clubs that women players say that they don't specifically want a, a woman coach 
that they just want the best person, the best candidate, and that we also hear that sometimes players say that they would like a male coach. I'd like to see a study on that, but anyway, that's the feedback that we get sometimes. And what I'd say to that is that AFLW players are seeking legitimacy. They're seeking a feeling that they, what they do is legitimate and that when you get someone of Nick Del Santo's stature investing in the program and bringing all that cachet that's associated with him to their program, they suddenly feel that. They suddenly feel like all the barbs that they get on social media, all the negative feedback about the fact that they're women in a male-dominated environment, they can suddenly point to go, but hang on, this guy, he's a legend of yours and look, he's, he's investing in us. So there is that little part of it. I hate that part of it. I think it's so cynical. I think it's misogynist. <laughs> but I think it's really true and it's there. If, if players retain that and then that can be levelled against coaching decisions because they say, well, players wanted a man, it's going to cut off their nose to spite their face because there will be no coaching opportunities for the current playing group because they're not creating the pathways and they're not supporting a diverse coaching cohort. Shelley? I'm a passionate person for the right person for the job. I just cannot believe the right person for the job has not been a woman out of 14 positions. That's a really good point. Kate's here. I was listening to a discussion on ABC Radio and it was a bunch of men. I don't know who they are. Their voices all sounded the same to me, so I couldn't just tell between them. But, you know, one of them said, one of them was talking about Robert Harvey, who's the caretaker coach, and said, you know, he's a great guy, a fabulous player, one of the most brilliant football minds you'll ever come across, but introverted and therefore not appropriate for senior coaching role. And went on to make the point that if you're ever in a room with Robert Harvey, he's often very quiet and listens to what every, everybody else has to say and then comes in at the end and says something that blows everybody's minds because he's brilliant, but but he's an introvert. So th- this, these kind of assumptions about, frankly, I think like alpha men being the best people for the job impact men and women in W and M, and I just think it's bullshit. Look at that. Twice in a show. <laughs> Rana. Balderdash. <laughs> Sorry, Shelley. Balderdash. Rana Hussein, you've been sitting there with sparkly little eyes looking at me. What do you think about this appointment? <laughs> yeah, I did, and I like I couldn't agree more with what everybody else has already said. The thing I that really got me was that surely they should have known that there would be a backlash to this decision. Like how... The fact that they didn't seem to even know that we would be up in arms about this told me everything, that they actually weren't plugged into the AFLW community. And I'm, I'm sure I've said this before on this podcast, but as women, we often can feel marginalised in this competition and in this league. And so then when you do feel marginalised and there's no transparent communication, you feel even more ignored and disenfranchised And that whole concept of inside the four walls for communities who are marginalised doesn't really track. We actually need the transparency. And what I haven't heard yet is really ultimately why they did choose Nick Del Santo. I reckon that this appointment has taken the AFL by surprise. I don't know that AFL HQ would have been that wrapped with this appointment because it really does shine a light on what's missing. The commission met last week. We're about to find out whether any new AFLW licences handed out for the end of next year. We know is that there's a lot of really good female specifically coaching talent available. I don't mean just women. 
I mean, men who have been so invested in the women's game, there's loads of women who are invested in the women's game. And I really hope that puts a real spotlight on that going forward so there is opportunities. All right, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to talk about the biggest news story of the week. I'm Sabrina Frederick and you're listening to The Outer Sanctum. It feels like we could tell this story every week, but of course this week the story was about Taylor Walker. He made a racist remark and has been sanctioned. Many of our listeners actually wanted to know if the sanction of six weeks is a proportional response. What is a proportional response to racism? Actually, might go to Kate's here first. Does sanctioning like this work? Look, I, I, I don't know. I, I guess my first reaction was that I actually thought he should have been suspended for a longer period of time. And the reason for that is, I guess it depends on what you think works, whether you're trying to deter, re-educate, sanction, punish Taylor Walker as an individual or to send a strong message to other players and people in and around the game or both. And for me, I mean, I think it's important that Taylor Walker take responsibility for what he said and that he account for that. But I think the much bigger and more important point to be made is that everybody associated with the game, including fans, perhaps fans most of all, get a really clear and strong message. Uh, And I think sometimes the only way that that can be done is through, or the main way that it can be done is through a sanction of that kind. Shelley, you are always called on and relied on to have this conversation and it's really brave and it takes its toll and we are so grateful for you to lead us at this time, which you always do. But sanctions v education, where do you sit on what should happen next? So I'm a little bit of three things. So education has been a massive part of my push throughout my whole life. Being a teacher in education, I find really, really valid and important. In recent years, I've found that we need to have consequences because education wasn't working alone. And that, you know, this whole push of education is going to solve the problem wasn't quite working as it should have. You know, and I I remember my university days when we had to do some kind of psychological test and it was about why don't you, why do you not speed? And everyone said, because we'll get caught. And then they said, you know, the real reason should be so you don't actually hurt somebody. And, you know, that's always just stayed with me. And I always reflect on that. And I think that's why people shouldn't be racist because of the pain that it causes. But we're going to get people to stop because they're going to be punished. You know, like there's going to be a consequence. So that's where we have to start with that. But I also think what we've missed with Taylor Walker and what's been missed in the whole situation is that he hasn't self-evaluated as a person because throughout a whole entire life we are put, you know, subliminal messages through media. We can be in a room with somebody. We can pick up an opinion off somebody. It might not stay with us. We might not think that's who we are as a person, but we eventually start to pick up what other people think and make it who we are as a person. And I think Taylor just didn't self-check himself He has these things that are going through through different people in his life, people that have been um, a part of who he is growing up as a child, a teacher, friends, friends, families, all of those things. He wasn't listening to what was happening in his innermost thoughts and he didn't self-check. He's had more education and I think that's been a really valid thing. I did speak to seven outlets, media outlets. Every single one of them said, he's had 15 years, Shelley, this isn't good enough. And that's the change that I loved. I love that our media actually were saying, hang on, what is going on here? This is actually ridiculous. This man has sat in a room, had lived experience in the room with him, 
and hasn't made a change. He didn't self-check. The education piece really worried me when I saw in the video him saying that he was going to be leaning on Robbie for his education going forward. Is that okay for me to think that? Yeah, I don't want to be the one that helps him through this at the moment. It's up to him. Right now we actually just need time. And the smartest thing he said was that he's going to give the club time, he's going to give those players time to heal. Because those players and their families, I can tell you, they don't want their children around him. And let's face it, they might be adults to us, but they're still their children. So they need time too. So that's probably been the smartest thing that he said in that area of healing. We're not quite ready for you to actually to lead that way. And I certainly don't want to see what a lot of people are saying on social media is that he needs to go to remote communities. That's not that's not what will change this. This isn't what will change his thought. Please stop thinking about Aboriginal people as the people that are going to be the ones to change this, it's up to you. How did the video land with you, Rana? It was really interesting. When I first saw it, my first reaction was cringe. It felt cringy to me and I felt uncomfortable and asked myself what on earth is Robbie Young doing in that video? This should be Taylor Walker's moment to stand front and centre and say I got it wrong and I need to learn. And then I listened to other people's reactions and I realised it was just many and varied, even in our own chat group. Some of us felt like this would be useful for others. Some people felt like, you know, it wasn't hitting the mark. I'm still not sure where I sit on this because I think for some people it was a really powerful thing to watch someone say, front up, say I got it wrong and I need to do better. For some people that really hit home for others It was so confusing to see Robbie Young be the person to have to help him along through it. So my answer is I don't know. I still don't know how I feel about this. The issue I have is that the ripple effects of this are huge. There are people of colour who work in the AFL industry. There are people of colour watching this unfold who just live through their own experiences all over again and feel frustrated all over again. And for me, what didn't help was the talking about it around it, the dissection of the issue by sports media mostly, and without really centering people of colour and their experiences in the conversation or acknowledging even that we are, you know, there were panels that talked about the issue and didn't acknowledge once well, there actually aren't any people of colour on this panel right now to bring a lived experience, so we are lacking in this conversation. All of that actually added to my distress in this moment and made me feel really frustrated. And, again, it was Shelley Ware front, you know, fronting up or Tony Armstrong fronting up. And now that social issues are intersecting with sport in a big way... If I were an editor or a producer in a sports media room, I'd be thinking, what are the capabilities of my people and can they handle this subject matter? And I'd be looking at, you know, the people that are high, long and hard. Sorry, that was a bit ranty, but I just, I am quite frustrated by the way this unfolded and that it felt like a lot of talk and not a lot of action. We talk about things around the issue rather than actually checking on the victim, checking on all of the victims, all of the fallout, and it all becomes about the other noise. Lucy, did you observe that too? I do, and I think the big elephant in the room is that we are actually still 
living in a racist society and many of our institutions and organisations have, if not racist structures, have unconscious biases that, you know, we live in a colonised country that still doesn't tell the truth about our history and from that and from that lack of truth telling means that we're always kind of faffing around at the edges and not ever really saying what's real it's a much bigger issue than than AFL it's definitely an issue that we're seeing through all of the different leagues you see all of the comments on social media there's you know such a rush to say well don't call him racist or he just said something you know it was just language without actually acknowledging that dehumanization is one of the tools of racism and a big part of that is language and language that dehumanizes if we're not going to look at that critically and look at that honestly i don't know how we're ever going to move forward it takes all of us to look very honestly and say yeah there's 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 racism everywhere and that's confronting what are we going to do about it how are we going to be anti-racist well it's interesting that you finish with that phrase lucy because that's of course also the name of a a book, a really important and influential book in the last couple of years that I wanted to encourage our listeners to seek out. That's uh, a book by Ibram Kendi, who is the founding director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Centre at American University in Washington, D.C. in the States. And his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, explores some of these issues. And I think it's so directly relevant to the Taylor Walker situation. I think in the last week, I feel that the debate has, and it you know, it happens so often when incidents like this happen, it narrows significantly and the whole discussion becomes about the intention and character and motivation of the individual who made the racist utterance, you know, and I think we can think back to so many incidents of racism in our sport, the the booing of Adam Goods, you know, the, the question is always about the intention of the individuals and then it just becomes a discussion about character. And what Ibram Kendi says in this book is that he himself has been racist all his life. He says that as a black man I internalised ideas about race and we all have and we are all racist in some way and that the word racist or we kind of think about racism as a sort of slur and a fixed category or a label that gets applied to people and we can't once, it, once we think about it as a slur, people become really defensive and that's the loop that we get stuck in and we never move beyond that conversation. And we see that again with Taylor Walker this week. We saw, you know, high-profile people in the media coming out and talking about the fact that he was a great guy, a good, good person and, and that, you know, he's not racist, he doesn't have a racist bone in his body. And I just want to read a quote to you from Kendi's book which I think encapsulates the issue for me. He says, the word racist is not the equivalent of a slur. It is descriptive. And the only way to undo racism is to consistently identify and describe it and then dismantle it. The attempt to turn this usefully descriptive term into an almost unusable slur is, of course, designed to do the opposite, to freeze us into inaction. I want to just encourage people to to take a look at that book and his work and, you know, to kind of respond to his call to arms, which is to reflect on yourself and also the kind of policies and structures and systems that much bigger than any one individual and really, uh, you know, kind of produce and reproduce the problem of racism all the, every day. 
The other thing I'd add in there, Kate, is that we need to stop thinking about shame and start thinking about accountability because shaming somebody or trying to use shame as a a tool to get people to change their behaviour is not helpful. As a player, he signs up to certain policies and he breached that policy and so he needs to be held accountable. I wanted to loop back to that idea of being anti-racist and and that idea that we have lived in a colonised country with racist structures and we do internalise a lot of it. And the thing, you know, Rana, you were talking about all the media panels, all the all-white panels talking about it and how they were being a bit softly, softly with it at times because I think that if you look at the incident, you know, it's a it's a quarter-time, half-time huddle. He's, com- he's in this competitive mindset and this thing has come out of his mouth And I think that for a lot of people that have grown up in a racist country, they go, fuck, I could have done that. Like I could have done that. In in that moment, that something like that could have slid out of my mouth and you feel what Lucy's talking about, that incredible sense of shame. And so then when we talk about the judgment and we talk about the punishment and how people are just being so kind to him because they feel this sense of empathy that like I have internalised, ingested all this racism in my whole life and it could have slipped out of my mouth. And I think that we need to flip it around to, okay, well, it's not about education because if you put the test in front of me about what is racism and what is not, I would pass it because I could think about it intellectually. But how do I look within and how do I do that anti-racist work? I think that that's really hard and I think that we need to destigmatize that stuff and what Kate is referring to there, that if we just talk about the slur of what it is to be a racist, that we'll we'll never get there. There's a time now to look within and go, how do I actively become anti-racist? It's really hard and we need to do it as as a group together without shaming. Rana, anti-racist policies, the ones that sporting organisations are looking towards rather than just education on cultural things, Yeah, now it is. It's a very new thing and it's still, I think people are still getting, I think people are still getting their heads around what that actually means. But I think one thing to keep in mind here is that there really won't be that day, as much as we'd like to say there will be and think there will be. How do you make the world entirely safe for everyone? You know, as a pursuit, sometimes I think that's too lofty a goal, what we can do is make safer contexts for everybody and create the plans and the processes and the policies that create safer environments. That's what people now are looking at. So when there is an incident of discrimination, what is the process and does the process itself do harm or is it does it serve to actually provide a case for healing? Shelley? That's one of the call to actions that I've been fighting for, Rana, on my socials and in all sorts of places for the last few weeks. We have seen, like Lucy suggested, a rise or is it that people are now coming forward and actually saying that things are happening in local and second-tier football leagues and it's people are really speaking out about it. So I'm actually asking people to go to their local club, whatever sporting club they're involved in, and actually check the policy and see if the racial vilification or the vilification rule, sorry, 35, is actually embedded within that in your policies of your club and do something about it, be proactive. We need 
everyone to do this, not just Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, not not people of LGBTIQ community. You know, we need absolutely everybody to make sure, people of all religions to make sure that everybody is safe within that environment and that they can play a sport that they love and leave and feel good about it at the end. Now we promised bra burning in season six of the pod. <laughs> I can feel my bra heating up. But what is bra burning? <laughs> it was a job for Googling with Felicity to find out. Googling with Felicity. On the afternoon of September 7, 1968, about 100 women gathered on the Atlantic City boardwalk to protest the running of the Miss America pageant. As part of their protest, they brought a bin which they labelled the Freedom Trash Can and they encouraged the crowd to fill the bin with what they described as instruments of female torture. Symbolically, they began to throw in items such as girdles, fry pans, cleaning products, high-heeled shoes and magazines such as Playboy and Cosmopolitan. At some point, a young woman performed that well-practised end-of-the-day movement of removing her bra via her sleeve, stepped forward and added it to the bin. Two days after the protest, writer Harriet Van Horn wrote in her newspaper column that there'd been a bonfire in the Freedom Trash Can. Her column read, With screams of delight, they consigned to the flames such shackling, demeaning items as girdles, bras, high-heeled slippers, hair curlers and false eyelashes. Her version of events was picked up and further elaborated on by journalist Art Bushwald in his nationally syndicated column, who went on to write that the final and most tragic part of the protest took place when several of the women publicly burned their brassieres. The problem is, however, this simply didn't happen. The notion that on this day bras had been set ablaze in flamboyant protest became a misleading legacy of the event and an image promoted and spread by two journalists who weren't there. The largely male-dominated media ran with this narrative, though, but they reworked the story of bra burning into a method of portraying the women's movement as ridiculous and obsessed with trivialities. The symbolic act of tossing those clothes into the trash can was meant as a serious critique of the modern beauty culture, of valuing women for their looks instead of their whole self. Going braless felt like a revolutionary act, where being comfortable was more important than meeting social expectations. But when the largely male legislature and media centred the theme of the women's movement around the concept of the bra, it minimised the effect of the original protest and, in time, the women's movement as a whole. It provided distraction from the larger issues at hand, like equal pay, childcare and reproductive rights, proving that it was simply too much to ask the commentators of the day to take these issues seriously when there were jokes to be made about boobies. Googling. Our little (laughs) sister Googling is back with boobies. (laughs) The Olympics was absolutely stunning. I have to admit I was terrified going in thinking, is this the right thing to do? And I enjoyed every single morsel of it for two weeks. And the highlight for me was the group chat, the conversations that we shared, and it bonded us. If we were 10 countries, we left <laughs> as, as best friends and allies forever. It was just a stunning display of humanity and, and in it. The group, it just the group had- chat? Everything the the group chat was <laughs> was the missing ring in the Olympic rings. Katesy, you enjoyed it so much; it was embarrassing. What was your highlight? 
Oh, I know. I loved it. I was the same as you, Emma. I, I was actually really sceptical and I felt like the Olympics was over for me and then it got going and I didn't move off the couch for two weeks, so much so that I've now put my back out. But, um, <laughs> look, there were so many highlights, but for me it's the it was the men's high jump. Italy's Gianmarco, Tamberi and Qatar's Mutaz Bashim both jumped 2 metres 39, which incidentally... Um, I betted in the 1968 <laughs> um, Mexico Olympics. Altitude was a factor there, but um, but nevertheless, they were given the option to go to a jump off or to share the gold medal. And uh, lots of people criticised it as a weak decision, as and as the easy way out. But I think in sport, so often, you know, there's just compl- the complete emphasis on dominating your opponent and being the sole winner and. I think especially for men who play sport, you know, there's a real big dick energy that um, that goes around and I loved that they decided to share the gold. I thought it was actually a, quite a strong and bold decision and it was just, a, you know, I know that Shelley and Rana and I were awake <laughs> on the group chat going absolutely zerk when, um, when they did it. It was really moving. I loved it. I think it's the ultimate big dick decision. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. Two eggplants are better than one. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was gorgeous. I loved it. Was that your highlight as well, Shelley, or did you have a different one? It was certainly one of mine, and Kate took that very early in the game of our planning, so I had to go with another. But I loved – there were too many, actually, to choose from. But one of my other favourites was the basketball, where our men's team won the bronze, and Paddy Mills just shone like the absolute superstar he is. And I loved – at the end, I loved how he talked about past players and how they were part of them moving forward in the present and then forward as a team. And then I loved Andrew Gaze talking about him being a part of the DNA. And I think whoever was left on that group chat, we were hysterically crying. <laughs> like everything about that moment was just pure tears. And, you know, your beautiful husband, Emma, he just led that conversation so well to I could cry about it now thinking about how Andrew was able to express himself so beautifully and openly. It was, it's, we need to see more of that. Yeah, it was quite the moment from the two Andrews. Two Andrews is too many Andrews on a TV show. Can I just say that? Like, where, give me a Rana. Lucy, what was your highlight? My highlight, specifically the women's park final. And my takeaway from that is that the youth are okay. So out of the medal winners, they were 19, 12 and 13. That just blew my mind. But the thing that I loved the most was when Japan's Masugo Okamoto, who is 15, fell in, in her final runs and she was someone that was a favourite to win the gold and she ended up coming fourth. When she fell and then climbed up out of the bowl, all of the other competitors just went and wrapped her in their arms and then lofted her up onto their shoulders. And I thought it was such a display of supportive, caring, sporting behaviour and I just loved it. So for me, that whole competition epitomised innovation and youth, athletic excellence but also supportive sporting behaviour. The other thing, if I can just jump in with one other little highlight, is the fact that we saw the Matildas smash the TV ratings for women's sport with 2.32 million viewers tuning in for the semi final. Turns out, people, that <laughs> we want to watch women's sport. 
And what I'm really hoping is that broadcasters take notice and I'm really hoping, I felt so much momentum watching all of these depictions of incredible female athletes at the top of their game. There was so much focus on their sporting achievements and not as much about are they a mother, what else do they do for a job, who are they married to. We we really got to just celebrate the athletes and I'm really hoping that that momentum and the way that we're able to really celebrate women's sport is something that we carry forward and change our benchmark. Julia, you were glued to the Matildas. <laughs> yes. And look, that was... Not the greatest last game for the Matildas. That was that was a bit painful to watch. But what I was excited about was that it was the largest contingent of openly LGBTQ plus athletes at an Olympics ever, over 180. And that's just of people who are out. We know that for a lot of people, especially from Olympic participating countries, that's not safe for them to do. So around 160 female and non-binary athletes make up that number um, participating in women's comps and in women's teams. And very excitingly, the first trans and non-binary gold medal winner uh, with uh, Quinn for the Canadian women's soccer team. And then, of course, the footy gods just throw you a lifeline with Kermu, I believe it's called the <laughs> couple name of their lesbian Stacey, which <laughs> burnt down the internet the day after the Matildas game with a few pics of the Australian captain and an opposition player just having a few little, little like, you know, sporting behaviour. Just sporting, just sportsmanship, just absolute <laughs> sportsmanship. It's so good to see. Yeah, I. it was a difficult day the day I realised I was a really good sportsman too. <laughs> <laughs> We're so glad that you sing it from the rooftops. <laughs> Rana, what was your highlight? There were so many. You and Tess staying up until the dead of night. We woke up to about a million <laughs> messages on the group chat and you had just gone for gold. It was a marathon before the Olympics had even begun. Oh, that was absolutely my highlight as well. Uh, I love that we all started together watching the opening ceremony and then one by one you all dropped off, went to bed and Tess and I were the last women standing. It was a beautiful night but I feel like I did peak early because I don't, don't think I could do another one after that and I did miss out on the closing ceremony even though I'd committed to her to stay up with her. I couldn't make it in the end. But my other highlight, I have to say, was Peter Boll and Morgan Mitchell, who didn't get the accolades. She didn't make it past her heat. But there were two people of colour in that athletics team running for Australia who we just haven't heard about before. And they've been around for a long, long time. They're amazing athletes. Uh, but Peter Boll stole our hearts. And I'm just so glad that him and his family got that airtime. And we got to celebrate him. It's so true. It was such a beautiful moment. It was so fun to watch. My highlights were Ced Cedric yelling. It's such a beautiful meme, <laughs> yelling all of the encouragement in the world. The High Jump Diaries, which is a movie I can't wait to watch. I just actually loved diarising after every jump. I was like, oh, that is next level. And I love getting inside people's minds like that. Ariane shitting the Americans really made me so happy. But I think my number one was Simone Biles. So good. We don't know what to do with her. And the fact that she has 
the intestinal fortitude to be able to own her truth. And I actually feel like she gave us all, all the sport loving public, a real lesson in how hard it is. But when you see Simone Biles say, I've got the twisties, it really meant something. And it really meant something to me. I've had my own mental health issues about driving over bridges. And I know it sounds probably bananas to lots of people, but to hear her say that she couldn't do certain twists, I was like, there's there's moments where I have to pull over and I can't drive over a body of water or over a freeway. And and I don't know, I felt like she was kind of sticking up for people who have all sorts of things going through their head that they don't expect. And I think that in the modern era, I felt like this Olympics, people were really owning their truth. And mm. whether it was knitting a cardigan in the stands or whether it was taking a knee anyway or showing the person that you loved at the end of a game, I just felt like there was moments in that that of course are so key to the sanctum and so key to why this matters to us. And I felt like we saw that on a global stage and it made me so extraordinarily exhilarated. The important thing to note is that we're just at half time because <laughs> the Paralympics <laughs> is just around the corner <laughs> and we get to do it all over again. And also we're in lockdown, so it's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> it couldn't have worked better. Kate, see, you formulated a new measurement of time over the Olympics and it's just too ridiculous for us not to launch. Yeah, yeah. So um, I have to give the background, which is that Anthony Scaramucci, one of the many press secretaries in Trump's administration back in the day, and he served for just 11 days. <laughs> and so the guys on the Pod Save America podcast refer to the Scaramucci as a unit of time, a measure of time. It's 11, it's 11 days worth of time. And <laughs> I felt like the walking the flag out in the closing ceremony of the, the Olympic Games needed to be its own measure of time because I'd never seen anything take so long and it felt like to me it was like 11 million light years as a unit of, as a measure of time. Like it just went for so long. I must admit that I was really tired by that stage because I'd put in 17 straight days of Olympics watching but... I just felt it needed to be a bit more snappy. But anyway, that's in, a, the in an ironic kind of rom com twist, I think that this episode of the podcast has gone for at least two Scaramoochies. It's gone for two Scaramoochies and a half of a quarter of one flag walked out in the closing ceremony. All right. Well, let's wrap this puppy up and get out of here. But before we do, we have to say that you can follow us on socials. Please rate and review us. We have never needed your support more. We really need you to subscribe to the pod. Tell a friend. Let people know on socials if you like this pod. I've got to be really honest. We're a bit rusty today and um, we're coming to terms with some new technology but we're doing our very best. <laughs> we're so grateful for you sticking with us and we will be back next week and there's only one thing left to say my ladies. Are you ready to say it? Go, Go footy! footy! <laughs> <laughs> okay bye.